Hello there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 37, First Blood. Last time, we left Hannibal and his Carthaginians as they emerged from their harrowing journey over the Alps into the idyllic landscape of northern Italy. Today, we will see how the seemingly spent Carthaginians proved that they were far from finished. Having narrowly skirted disaster in the Alps, Hannibal and his surviving cohorts rested and regrouped among the friendly insubres, a much-needed pause since, in the words of Livy, the soldiers had become as filthy and unkempt as savages, and the sudden change from labor to leisure, from starvation to plenty, from dirt and misery to decent living, had affected them in various ways. As part of their convalescence, Hannibal soon led them against the neighboring Gallic tribe of the Tarisci, which had gone to war against the Insubres. In a brutal sack, Hannibal unleashed his men to massacre the inhabitants of their main city, serving the simultaneous purpose of blooding his soldiers and instilling a potent reminder to any wavering Gauls of the Carthaginians' willingness to be ruthless. When news reached the Romans regarding Hannibal's descent into Italy, shock and consternation ensued at the capital. Having missed Hannibal in Gaul and awaited developments in Italy, the Roman consul Scipio now marched northward with a detachment of green recruits to meet the Carthaginian menace. Meanwhile, the Senate recalled the other consul Sempronius from Sicily to aid his colleague to confront this unexpected invasion thus accomplishing one of Hannibal's main objectives by diverting the dreaded invasion of North Africa. Now, all that remained was to bring the Romans to decisive battle. With Scipio closing in on his position, Hannibal chose a novel method of inspiring his troops for the coming fight. Bringing out the captive tribesmen which the army had captured in the Alps, he laid full sets of rich Gallic armor before them, along with fine horses and cloaks. He then asked whether any of the prisoners wished to fight to the death in single combat, with the victors gaining not only the armor and weapons as a reward, but also their freedom as well. The young men, starved and mistreated during their captivity, all clamored to accept his offer, and Hannibal had them chosen by lot to do battle. A series of fierce contests ensued, with the prisoners paired off and dueling each other until one or the other fell in combat. So great was the courage shown by these unfortunate prisoners that the Carthaginians applauded the vanquished no less than the victors, declaring that even the dead were to be envied over the prisoners who had not been chosen and now remained in miserable captivity. Having heard this, Hannibal stepped forward to address his men. My soldiers... Just now, as you are watching other men's fate, you were not unmoved. Only think with similar feelings of what is in store for yourselves, and victory is already in our hands. What you have seen was more than a spectacle for your entertainment. It was a sort of image or allegory of your own condition. It may indeed be that fate has laid upon you heavier chains and harsher necessities than upon those prisoners of ours. North and south the sea hems you in. You have not a single ship even to escape in with your lives. Facing you is the Po, a greater and more turbulent river than the Rhone. Behind you is the Alpine barrier, 
which even in the freshness and flower of your strength you almost failed to cross. Here then, where you have first come face to face with the enemy, you must conquer or die. But have courage. Wherever I look, I see high hearts and strong arms. I see my veteran infantry, my cavalry, native and Numidian, all drawn from nations of noble blood. I see my brave and loyal allies, and lastly you, my fellow countrymen of Carthage, whom just resentment as well as patriotism has inspired to fight. We are the aggressors, we the invaders of Italy, and for that reason shall fight with a courage and audacity corresponding to our hopes, with the well-known confidence of him who strikes the first blow. Think on these things, carry them printed in your minds and hearts. Then, I repeat, success is already yours. God has given man no sharper spur to victory than contempt of death. For the Romans' part, when their army came into view of the Carthaginians, Scipio reminded his men of Rome's prior victories in the First Punic War, decrying the Carthaginians, in the words of Livy, as ghosts and shadows of men, already half dead with hunger, cold, dirt, and neglect all their strength crushed and beaten out of them by the alpine crags. Cold has dried them up. Snowstorms have frozen their sinews stiff. Their hands and feet are frostbitten, their horses lamed and enfeebled, and they have not a weapon among them which is not damaged or broken. What an army! Why, you will not be facing an enemy at all, but only the dregs of what once were men. Having both roused their men to a fever pitch, the two generals, aware of their close proximity but uncertain of the other's exact location, set out in search of the enemy. The Romans built a pontoon bridge across the Po River, and upon crossing, Scipio rode out with a cavalry detachment to reconnoiter the ground. Coincidentally, Hannibal had done likewise, and the large clouds of dust which rose about the columns betrayed their positions to each other. The Carthaginians, fired by Hannibal's speeches and promises, were eager to engage, while the Romans hesitated, partially, according to Livy, due to certain unfavorable omens which had been seen in the Roman camp. A wolf had somehow entered their camp and mauled several men before escaping unhurt, and a swarm of bees had settled on a tree which overhung Scipio's tent, which, for some reason, symbolized a bad thing even though a swarm of bees settling on a statue of Agathocles once foretold of his future greatness. Despite this incongruity, the ever-superstitious Romans took all proper precautions to avert the feared disaster prior to their reconnaissance mission. Now Scipio sent forward his Gallic allies and his own Roman cavalry, along with the Velites, to meet the oncoming Spanish and Gallic cavalry which held the Carthaginian center with the Numidians circling about their wings. Both sides' horsemen were so keen to strike the first blow that the Roman skirmishers did not have time to discharge a single volley of javelins, instead having to fall back through the Roman lines, fearful of being trampled by the onrushing horse. These now clashed in the center of the field, which soon became hotly contested, with many riders dismounting voluntarily to fight on foot, so that the battle soon resembled a combined infantry and cavalry engagement. Meanwhile, Hannibal's Numidians, having skirted around the outside of the Roman lines, now fell upon the defenseless skirmishers in the rear, 
impaling them with their javelins or cutting them down with swords until they fled headlong in a rout. Wheeling about, the Numidians then smashed into the rear of the Roman cavalry, throwing them into complete confusion, killing many and wounding Scipio himself. The consul was only saved from death or capture by the courage of his 18-year-old son, also named Scipio, who rallied a band of men to cut away to safety. Thus ended the Battle of the Tacinus, named for a nearby tributary of the Po River, with a resounding Carthaginian victory. Although casualties on both sides had been heavy, the Romans had yielded the field, and soon Scipio, in agony over his wound and concerned of being cut off from the pontoon bridge leading to his camp, withdrew across the Po, leaving 600 men to demolish the bridge. Alerted to the enemy's withdrawal, Hannibal marched swiftly to the Po and captured the Roman soldiers with the bridge only half demolished. Throwing up a pontoon bridge of his own, he soon crossed the Po in pursuit of Scipio. Events soon worsened for the beleaguered Romans. During the night, a band of Gallic auxiliaries, 2,000 warriors with 200 noble horsemen, formed a conspiracy to break out of the Roman camp. In the wee hours of the morning, the Gauls, fully armed, fell upon the sleeping Romans, stabbing them in their beds before killing the sentries at the gate and fleeing to the open country. Once free of pursuit, the Gallic band deserted to Hannibal, who received them graciously, promising rich rewards before sending them home with instructions to raise their fellow tribesmen in revolt against the Romans. Scipio, shaken by this breach of faith within his own army, feared that a general Gallic revolt was indeed at hand. As a precautionary measure, he broke camp and marched to the river Trebia. Here, the Romans could defend the nearby hilly country more easily, while simultaneously making it more difficult for Hannibal's cavalry to operate. Even so, Hannibal's Numidians might have caused havoc among Scipio's rearguard if they had not been diverted by a desire to plunder the Romans' empty camp. Having placed the river between the Carthaginians and himself, Scipio fortified a permanent camp before settling in to nurse his painful wound and wait for the relief force led by his colleague Sempronius. Meanwhile, Sempronius had sailed from Sicily with all speed after disposing the fleet to defend the coast. Landing at Arminum, modern-day Ramini, he then force-marched his army until he joined Scipio on the Trebia after an unbroken 40-day journey. There, Sempronius found Scipio in despondent spirits. Just before the reinforcements arrived, Scipio discovered that the town of Clastidium had been betrayed to Hannibal by its garrison commander, who delivered over its critical grain stores to the enemy. This disturbed Scipio the more since the garrison commander was from one of the allied Italian cities, Brundisium in this case. As we remember from our past episodes, Rome at this time did not rule Italy directly. Rather, excluding certain pieces of land reserved to the Roman people, the remaining cities of the peninsula could be divided into three categories, those which had Roman citizenship, those which comprised the Latins, and those which had a formal treaty of alliance with Rome. The cities with Roman citizenship are self-explanatory, often consisting of Roman colonies which operated as satellites of the mother city 
amid the conquered territory of former enemies. The Latins, by contrast, possessed a large amount of local autonomy, but enjoyed special economic and civil rights in their dealings with Rome. Both of these held the closest ties with the capital, united not only politically, but also by law, tradition, and culture. The majority, though, of Rome's Italian hegemony consisted of allied city-states known as the Socii. Bound to Rome by a formal treaty either voluntarily negotiated or imposed after conquest, these cities maintained their own separate political and cultural identities, governing themselves under their own natural leaders, but united to the Roman dominion via a patchwork network of alliances, with Rome at the center. Although required by treaty to supply Rome with men, money, and material for her wars, the Italian allies complied with varying degrees of loyalty, with some which had been Rome's bitterest enemies previously, the Samnites are a notable example, harboring what could only be termed a grudge against the newly raised leader of the Italian peninsula. If a potential Gallic revolt wasn't bad enough, a desertion by the Socii and especially the Latin cities was a thought that haunted Rome's worst nightmares. Approximately 50% of a consular army, including the majority of the cavalry, came from the Socii, and if they were to abandon Rome, her greatest asset, her manpower, would vanish overnight. Hannibal likely understood this, making the defections of the Italian peoples his top priority in both his overall strategy and his propaganda, which presented him as a Hellenistic-style liberator, similar to the way Pyrrhus had done years before. If he could break up the network of Roman allies, he could deny her both the men and the resources she needed to fight him. The defection of the Brundisian commander, therefore, seemed like a promising start. Hannibal richly rewarded the man with 400 gold pieces, hoping to encourage further defections among prominent Italians. To further incentivize desertion among those with wavering loyalties, he would need to bring the Romans to decisive battle and defeat them on their own soil. Back in the Roman camp, the two consuls argued with one another about what should be done. Scipio, grown cautious due to his wound and the recent setbacks, preferred to wait for a more favorable time to engage the Carthaginians. It was still December 218 BC, with snow covering the ground, and time favored the defending Romans as opposed to the Carthaginian invaders. Besides, he argued, the new recruits would benefit greatly by further training over the remaining winter months, and the Gauls, notoriously fickle, might become disillusioned with the Carthaginians if they saw no activity on Hannibal's side. By contrast, Sempronius, fired up by his long march and eager for battle, demanded instant action. With both consular armies united, what more were they waiting for? Were they waiting for a third consul and yet another army, Livy has Sempronius say scornfully? Can you not hear the groans of our fathers who were wont to fight around the walls of Carthage, at the sight of their sons cowering here, in Italy, behind their defenses, though two consuls and two consular armies are in the field? To Sempronius's rigid mind, the shame of such a course could not be borne. 
Another unstated reason for Sempronius's eagerness to come to grips with Hannibal was also the coming consular elections, where the newly elected consuls would replace Scipio and Sempronius and take over the war with Hannibal. If decisive battle were delayed too long, Sempronius would lose out on all the glory to be had from defeating Hannibal. On the other hand, if he forced the decision before the new consuls took power, he would reap the whole glory of defeating the Carthaginian invaders, since Scipio was still incapacitated and unable to contribute. Thus another reason for his insistence on instant battle. Across the Po, Hannibal equally desired a quick engagement, and for the exact reasons for which Scipio had counseled caution. The Gauls, enthusiastic for his cause at the moment, would soon lose interest if their ferocious energy was not soon spent on the enemy, while the difficulties of feeding and maintaining his force in a hostile country would only mount as time went on. Besides this, many local Gallic tribes and Italian cities remained neutral, waiting to see which side would emerge victorious before declaring their hand. Hannibal needed a battle, almost as much as Sempronius desired one. Thus it was with relief and joy that Hannibal heard through his spies that at least one of the consuls facing him was a strong-willed, proud man chafing to come to grips with the Carthaginians. Having fathomed his opponent, Hannibal methodically set about baiting the hook. When a subsequent cavalry skirmish went the Romans' way, the success confirmed Sempronius in his own impetuous views. By contrast, Hannibal, convinced that great battles should not be fought on spur-of-the-moment encounters, coolly reorganized his troops on a nearby level plain. His diligence paid off, for he discovered a small stream which ran through a defile in the plain, perfect for concealing an ambush. During the night, Hannibal dispatched Mago with a thousand light horse and the same number of light infantry to the river, with instructions to hide themselves amid the prickly underbrush placing their emblazoned shields face down on the ground and covering their helmets beneath them to prevent any glints from betraying their presence. Although suspicious of woodlands and hills due to their experience with Gallic ambushes, the Romans were careless about level plains, thinking that nothing could be concealed within them. Hannibal would teach them otherwise. At dawn on the following morning, Hannibal sent his swift Numenians across the Po to the Roman camp in order to provoke an attack. When Sempronius caught sight of the advancing Numidians, he predictably dispatched his own cavalry and skirmishers in pursuit, ordering the legionaries to follow up as soon as they were armed, despite the fact that none of his men had eaten breakfast yet. A heavy snow also began to fall on them as they tightened their belts and braced against the bitter cold. Their mission accomplished, the Numidians retired before the advancing Romans, who plunged into the frigid Po River in pursuit, struggling across with the icy water coming up to their chests. By the time they reached the opposite shore, they could barely grasp their weapons, so numb were they with cold and hunger. While the Romans waded across the freezing water, Hannibal had given orders for his men to eat breakfast and rub themselves with oil around their campfires, to keep their bodies warm and supple. Having leisurely prepared themselves, they took up their positions on the plain as previously arranged, well-fed, 
fully clothed and ready for battle. The battle opened with Hannibal's Balearic slingers engaging with the Roman Velites. The latter suffered greatly against the superior skill of the Balearics, the more so since the majority of their javelins had already been spent against the Numidians, while the remainder were rendered nearly useless from the damp. With their Velites retiring in confusion, the legionaries now advanced to the fray. Sempronius had stationed his 16,000 Romans and 20,000 allied Italians in the center, with his smaller force of 4,000 cavalry guarding the flanks. Opposite them, in the center of the Carthaginian line, stood Hannibal's 20,000 Iberians, Gauls, and Libyans, while on his flanks rode nearly 10,000 Gallic, Spanish, and Numidian cavalrymen, along with the lumbering 37 elephants which had survived the Alpine crossing. Combined with his 8,000 light infantry and the hidden ambushers, Hannibal's army numbered nearly 40,000 men. The Romans tallied an equal number against him with the two consular armies, joined together as they only did when a battle was deemed critical and the threat to Rome dire. Despite their disadvantages from hunger, cold, and the blinding snow, the Romans fought savagely against the Carthaginians once they closed hand-to-hand. For a long time, neither side could gain the advantage, and many fell in the carnage. On the flanks, however, the Roman cavalry soon found themselves outmatched both in quantity and quality versus their Gallic, Spanish, and Numidian opponents. The Numidians especially proved a thorn in their flesh, withdrawing coolly in small groups from the Romans' charge before suddenly turning and countercharging recklessly down upon the spent Roman horse, hurling their javelins with deadly precision. The elephants added further confusion, terrifying the Roman horses with their sight and smell. Under such disadvantages, it was only a matter of time before the Roman cavalry broke, leaving the flanks of the infantry exposed to the victorious Carthaginians. Now the Balearic slingers, skirmishers, cavalry, and elephants fell upon the flanks of the unprotected Romans, slaughtering many enfeebled and exhausted soldiers. Even so, the legionaries fought stubbornly on until Mago at last sprung his ambush, and falling upon the Roman rear, completed the encirclement. The battle now descended into a slaughter, as Roman soldiers made final stands or fled for the river. Having withdrawn his elephants when they had begun to get out of hand due to being pierced with missiles or stabbed in vulnerable spots beneath their tails, Hannibal now unleashed them upon the Romans' Gallic auxiliaries, who promptly broke and fled, crowning the Carthaginian coup de grace. Only 10,000 Romans, who banded together in a hollow square under Sempronius himself, managed to cut their way through the center of Hannibal's lines and escape breaking the Gallic warriors and Libyan soldiers who faced them. Yet they could neither return to help their fleeing comrades, nor regain their camp due to the swollen river and driving sleet. So instead, they made the wearisome march to the town of Placentia in nearby Utreia to barricade themselves against the victorious invaders. Those unfortunates who attempted to recross the river drowned or were killed by the pursuing Numidians and elephants. Though casualties for both sides are unfortunately not reported, it is estimated that in all, 
the Romans lost somewhere between 26,000 to 28,000 total casualties, with the Carthaginians suffering substantially fewer, somewhere around five to 6,000, most of whom were Gauls who were killed when Sempronius cut his way through their center. Hannibal had won his first major victory, and what a resounding, crushing victory it was. At the Battle of the River Trebia, he had proven that he was a match man for man with the Romans. He had secured the allegiance of the Gauls, who now defected to him in mass. The core of his army remained in high spirits. Most of the casualties had occurred among the Gauls, with few Africans or Spaniards falling. Even the bitter cold of the following days, which actually killed many men and pack animals, including all but one of the surviving elephants, failed to dampen the mood of the triumphant Carthaginians. When the weather relented, Hannibal marched on Placentia, where Scipio had taken over for Sempronius, who made the harrowing journey through the Carthaginian patrols to Rome to preside over the consular elections. At first, Sempronius attempted to conceal the magnitude of his defeat, claiming that a battle had been fought and he would have won a great victory had the weather been more cooperative. Nonetheless, the truth soon came out, shocking the Roman people and driving home how dangerous the situation truly was. Both consular armies had been decimated. Scipio with the survivors was cut off and besieged in Placentia, and now nothing stood between Hannibal and Rome. True to form, however, the Romans took defeat as an invitation to double down. The newly elected consuls, Nius Servilius Geminus and Gaius Flaminius mustered new legions among the Romans and their Italian allies, simultaneously sending fleets to supply Scipio and the surrounding cities in Etruria in preparation for the coming campaign. Appeals to allies for troops yielded swift fruit, and even Hiero, the 90-year-old king of Syracuse, who we will remember from the First Punic War, dispatched a band of 500 Cretan archers and a 1,000 skirmishers to aid the Roman war effort. On all fronts, the Romans signaled that they were serious this time. The defeat at Trebia must be wiped out in blood. The Romans are at their most formidable, declares Polybius, when they are genuinely threatened. Next time, we will pick up with the Roman counterattack, which culminated at the famous Lake Trasimene. Until then, take care and read more history.